Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, broadcast on WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and now out of Manchester, New Hampshire as well at 101.9. And we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please do subscribe. Well, the recently concluded COP26 summit in Glasgow, COP standing for Conference of Parties, was supposed to shine an international spotlight on global warming and charge up the next stage of commitments from countries to reduce carbon emissions. There were only two problems. One was that it's unclear how much progress was actually made. The conference did end with a new consensus about the need for action, and some analysts called this a substantial achievement. But the noted Swedish activist Greta Thunberg accused the conference of consisting of a lot of blah, blah, blah. The other problem is that nowadays it's hard to focus on the fact that the world is on fire. When global warming is competing for our attention with immediate problems like a worldwide pandemic, economic instability, political dysfunction, and the fact that democracy is weakening around the world and may not have long to go in the U.S. if the authoritarians have their way. So we wanted to take a look at where we really are on climate, COP, and the U.S. role, and uh, to do what we To do that, we have one of the most powerful environmental leaders in the United States. We want to welcome Elizabeth Gore, who is Senior Vice President for Political Affairs at the Environmental Defense Fund. She served as a U.S. Senate Legislative Director and Chief of Staff to a U.S. Senator for 18 years as a total of her Senate service. And she even worked for six years in that lowly institution, which I once visited on a regular basis, the United States House of Representatives. Uh, And notably, uh, she is a graduate of a top liberal arts college in the country, which my co-host Matt Robeson calls the greatest institution of learning in the entire world, if not the cosmos, Swarthmore College. So Elizabeth, welcome to Beyond Politics. Well, thank you so much for having me today. And I have to say that um, laundry list of ills that we're facing, you're going to dampen my sunny optimism, Paul. So, uh... <laughs> well, never, you know, I mean, I, I call myself an op- an optimistic idealist. And although those of us who are optimistic idealists are challenged in today's political uh, environment, uh, it's the ability to have conversations like the one we're going to have with folks like you who are doing such good work that give us the fortitude to carry on. Well, thank you. And I, and I'm delighted to be here today. So just from a 30,000 foot level, um, what was EDF hoping to see emerge out of COP 2026? Let me start by saying, I think anytime you have 
all of the countries of the world or most of them gathered together talking about the challenges of climate change and discussing ways to address those challenges, I think that's a good thing. I think it is a positive uh, development when, when people are together and really focused on this issue. And there were some, there were some um, agreements made. There was progress that we saw during the COP. And so uh, was it everything we hoped it would be? Well, I, I will say for us, for EDF, methane is one of the biggest issues that we focus on. Let me just take one minute to talk about methane. Uh, methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas that's uh, over a 20 year time frame. it's 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Now the difference is that methane dissipates very quickly. So cutting it now has a very is a great way to slow the trend of warming that we're seeing. And so we have to address carbon dioxide, absolutely. And there was some progress on that um, at the COP, but to um, make quick progress and jumpstart the process, we have to cut methane. And during the COP, 108 countries signed the methane pledge. This methane pledge um, committed these countries to reducing methane by 30% by 2030. And it included some real accountability around those targets. So for us, that was a huge victory. That was something we were very focused on and we were very proud to work on. Um, I would also mention that China explicitly included methane in its uh, joint declaration. And uh, so not a signatory to the methane pledge, but similarly, is uh, making commitments around this important issue. So for us, that was what we took away as one of the more important successes that did come out of the cop. Can See, I just Paul, follow? You, did, you didn't manage to steal her sunshine. You no, no. <laughs> that was that was a relatively upbeat assessment of, of yeah. what we just what we what we got that, there. That, you know, I I, I actually did a, a different. I, I host another show on this wonderful station and uh, focused on some of what COP was about, and uh, it wasn't nearly as rosy as as that assessment, which I appreciate and and frankly I agree with because. Um, especially given where the world has been on climate change and dealing with it, um, getting people together and ending up with a pledge to come back basically in a year with a real plan for, for what people are going to do is, is a big deal. Just following up on your comments about dealing with methane, um, what, what does that pledge for the United States mean in terms of our domestic policy? Well, one of the things about methane is there already is technology that is very low cost that can be implemented in the oil and gas industry and capture the, the, the methane leakage that we're seeing, the methane flaring that's already underway. So for the United States, the, the biggest progress that we can make is in that oil and gas industry. And it's around leaky pipes, it's around flaring, it's around orphan wells. There are all kinds of um, uh, emissions points, emission points 
and they can be addressed with at relatively low cost. Um, and so this is that's what it would mean for the United States. There has been other progress made here in the U.S. Uh, there are the EPA just issued proposed regulations around EPA, reg, I mean, or excuse me, around methane regulation. Um, and uh, there's, uh, we're going to talk about this later, but uh, the upcoming bill that the House passed that the Senate is considering, the Build Back Better Act, includes a methane fee in it as well. So there are a number of policies that are moving forward on methane. And um, and so we we see that all as a positive as a positive step forward. Well, and not to be overall Pollyanna-ish about any of this, but it, it does sound like there are some real opportunities that you're identifying here for problems that we have solutions for things that we can do practically that are not super high cost. We're not waiting to develop the technology and they can have immediate impact given the amount of leverage we get out of addressing a gas like methane, which has such an immediate impact and also dissipates relatively quickly. Let's just take a step back then and, and talk a little bit about where we are in your view and in EDF's view overall. The New York Times, just published a major visual essay called Postcards from a World on Fire. Kudos for a dramatic title. And they're suggesting that the situation is, in their words, already dire and may be too late. So this is a question that, that, that is actually very practical, like how positive we should all be. And among environmental advocates, there is something of a division around should we be talking about a more hopeful message? Here's what we can accomplish. Here's how much progress we've made in recent years. Or should we be trying to scare people a little bit more into action in terms of how dire it is and, and how little time is left? So in your view, in EDF's view, how bad are things today? And how hopeful are you about heading off the worst effects of global warming? There's no question that we are in a crisis. There is no question that we are facing an urgent situation that demands immediate, bold, transformational steps. No question about that. Our view is scaring people into action is first of all, not always very effective. And second of all, perhaps not sufficient. We need more than just individual action. We need corporate action and we need government action. And it's not clear to me that there, there has been success in trying to scare governments into, into acting. But it's it is a scary situation. There's no question about that. When we see the extreme weather that all across the globe and the New York Times piece really focused on that, um, that's real and that's affecting people now that is affecting communities it's affecting families and businesses and whole countries and uh, we need to take that seriously when we are talking about this um i think our focus has been on what can we get done what have we been able to get done and where can we make the most progress right away and so from my perspective, and I think from EDF's perspective, that's a better way to move forward. Going down the, the drain of despair 
um, isn't all that motivating for changed behavior either. And um, one of the things that was interesting in that New York Times piece was they did have a video editorial, which I'm not sure if you listened to or not, but it talked about some of the solutions that we are on the cusp of making and the importance of innovation and transformation in the key sectors, including um, the power sector, the transportation sector, and the industrial sector. And uh, you know, we support that, we agree with that. There are certainly areas where we need to be making investments so that we can make that transformation. There are other places where that, that technology already exists and um, we just need the government to help push that transformation forward. So um, from our perspective, I, I, I am more hopeful than I was say a year or so ago. And I think that there are changes that are already underway and, um, and that there are additional investments and changes that we can make today. Well, for my part, just to follow up on it, in terms of the video essay, the most compelling thing to me was the video of the guy, I believe it was in Finland, who for some reason was skating in a Speedo on a frozen pond. And the whole upshot of it was thin ice, right? Because of global warming, the ice is too thin. He breaks through. He kind of comes up like a dog. He sort of shakes his hair out. And it's, I, I don't know what the message is of that, but it seems, it seems potentially disastrous. Actually, on a more serious note, I do want to follow up on the thought of, you, you mentioned a moment ago that this isn't just about individual attitudes. It's going to involve buy-in from institutions, corporations, and government. We're going to talk a lot more about the government side of this because obviously you are a stone cold expert in the government side. But what do you make of the progress or, or lack thereof in terms of awareness and willingness to take concrete action on the part of corporations, institutions, and what we see in the general public in terms of awareness and attitudes about global warming and how tuned in people are. Do you find those trends hopeful or are we kind of stagnating? In terms of the public perception, I think there has been a sea change over the last several years. You mentioned Greta Thunberg and she has been hugely influential uh, with, with the, um, leaders around the world and with her generation. There have been a lot of these severe weather disasters and I think that they have opened people's eyes. There's no way to watch the hurricanes, the wildfires, the droughts, the, um, uh, the changing ecosystems. All of these aspects of climate change are very becoming more and more visible and they're very impactful. And, um, and so I, I think that there has been much greater awareness and call for action over the last uh, several years. I will say um, that when we think about some of the legislation moving through the pro process now, um, climate change has actually been one of the less controversial aspects of those bills. And when we talk to members, both sides of the aisle, both sides of the Capitol, there's a recognition we have to act here. And some of it is um, a well-founded um, commitment to climate action. Some of it's pure politics. So yes, I think that the, that the um, political 
and the public perception of climate change and the importance of acting is real. Now, it is also the case that um, ambition is not universal. So we're not across the finish line. We have a lot more work to do, but I do think that the public perception is changing on that. I would say that um, with respect to the business engagement, it's, it is all over the map. You, know, you have to acknowledge and recognize that there are companies that are really taking progressive, progressive steps here. Um, some of the car companies, very focused on electric vehicles. Um, utilities, really making a shift, depending upon where they are and who they are, um, but moving towards, towards lower carbon footprint. Um, there, are, there are many um, consumer good pro, uh, companies that have similarly taken some of these steps. Is it sufficient? Well, you know, I think they're moving in the right direction. Do we need to do more? Absolutely. Would they be encouraged by additional government policy? Yes, but companies are, uh, are responding to their customers, they're responding to their shareholders, and they're responding to their employees. And as the public sentiment shifts, these companies are going to shift as well. You know, it's it's in it's interesting. I, I am uh, now in the business of sustainable energy. I uh, formed a consultancy, and I'm out there in the marketplace um, talking about uh, solar and waste energy and um, uh, net zero construction. And it's a pretty fascinating and fast moving landscape uh, with lots of businesses still you know, engaged in conventional. Well, what's my return on investment? Others. Um, seeing themselves on the more philanthropic side um, moving. And a lot of, of very strong positive response from municipalities. Um, one of the, and this is really a lightning round question. Um, so we're moving in the United States, but around the world, some huge company, countries, India, China, Russia, uh, are not, do not seem as committed to making rapid progress because for lots of reasons, which a lightning round won't go into. Are there organizations like yours at work uh, in the international community that you think can affect the course for those large, um, uh, slower moving countries? The answer is yes. And I would say both EDF has offices in both China and India. And we have to recognize that those countries are in a different place than we are politically from an economic point of view and from a climate point of view. So you're right about the fact that they're behind us. It's also the case that they have fewer emissions per capita than the United States. So there are, we need to be eyes wide open about where the, the burden falls here it's also the case that when you look at historical emissions, the United States cannot take a walk here. They have a big um, historical footprint that needs to be diminished. Well, it's I find that encouraging as well, because this is actually a topic. I remember we had an exercise we had to do when I was in grad school 20 years ago. That's sort of a bracing sentence to deliver right there. And it was all about how can we work with and move the international community? And it was kind of bleak. 
at the time. And it, I, I have to agree, especially based on your assumption, your, your assessment, because it's coming from you, that we have made an awful lot of progress on the international front. So let's take a closer look at what's happening here in the U.S. Obviously, two very big pieces of legislation either just passed or in the on-deck circle in the U.S. Congress. The one that was passed is the infrastructure bill, and it did have provisions in it aimed at combating climate change. There was $50 billion for climate resilience and weatherization. There were steps on clean energy, grid investments, et cetera. So what was your view and EDF's view on that infrastructure bill? Are there particular high points that stood out to you that you thought, wow, this is, this is a real win for the climate agenda? Are there areas where they could have done a little bit better? So the bipartisan infrastructure bill, as you mentioned, is passed by the Senate with a, with a strong bipartisan vote, uh, then moved through the House and was signed into law just before Thanksgiving. And so there are a couple of pieces of that that I would highlight. On the climate side, the bill included billions of dollars for charging stations for electric vehicles. This is really important for transforming that transportation sector. It's one of the biggest emitting sectors, and we need to have the infrastructure in place so that we can drive some of the demand for electric vehicles. So um, the, that infrastructure piece, very important. And the bill also included billions of dollars for electric buses. Um, this is one of those areas that um, where government can make a big difference in terms of trying to put, help offset some of that upfront cost. And so that states, localities, municipalities, tribes, they can all make those investments in buses. So um, there, the, we saw that as really uh, important important pieces of that package. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about um, the importance of orphan wells and trying to cap the emissions there. There were about $5 billion for orphan wells in that package. Um, that's not the director that's, that's previously utilized oil and gas drilling <laughs> facilities. Not orphan wells. Oh. Wells. <laughs> And that 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 you, would be one of the for clarifying strange, strangest because that would be awkward. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Robeson, you're at it again. Well, you know, it's once you have a certain number of children, your DNA kicks in. The dad jokes start. And you just there, there's nothing um, you can do about it. But please continue. Um, you mentioned the grid work. Absolutely, we have to have a resilient grid. We have to have a grid that has flexibility so that we can bring on new renewable power. And um, make sure that as we electrify sector, seg sectors like transportation, that we can, are, are, are charging those with clean electricity. Um, the last thing I would mention is there are a number of issues around um, environmental justice that we see as really critical that were in included in that infrastructure package. And let me give you just one example. Um, ports are particularly uh, have particularly high levels of emissions. And so um, they are also typically located in these frontline communities that bear a disproportionate burden of the um, poor air quality. And um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill included uh, billions of dollars in 
trying to reduce emissions just at ports, which is a really important part of trying to uh, alleviate some of that environmental inequity. And so that's just one example that we you know, think is really important in terms of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, well, and one, I just would, I would mention I would just, that- Let me just, oh, let me just mention go ahead. Go ahead. One, one last thing, and that's around lead service lines. There was a, a big investment in replacing lead service lines, which is another environmental justice um, priority for us. It's not a climate issue so much, but certainly a public health issue, certainly a justice issue. And um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But That's I, exactly where I was going. It's it's that top-notch Swarthmore education. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> exactly. We uh, no, that I, I did want to note that. I mean, I think people are aware of this, but Environmental Defense Fund, obviously, climate is the biggest environmental issue of our time and possibly of all time. But there are a wide range of issues that impact. Americans impact people around the world. And in this case, the cleanup of those of those drinking water lines is is really important, especially in light of what we saw in Flint and in other communities. And it's a it's a particularly um, justice related issue. So I I I had wanted to note it, but you got there first. Well, you know, well, I will just say we have been lucky. We've got we've had strong support from from the White House and in fact, from the entire New Hampshire delegation, really strong support for um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and for the, some of these investments that we've talked about, including that lead service line provision. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, the, your comments really resonate with me. Uh, and, and Matt's, uh, I'll even give you credit for resonance uh, because um, uh, environmental justice is is really the poor stepchild of the entire debate, it seems to me, around both climate and uh, environmental policy. Um, and it's only recently that, it, that it's begun to work its way into the consciousness of the public through the work of organizations, most notably the Environmental Defense Fund, which have, which have raised the issue and put it in, in, the, larger, in the larger context in terms of, of how important it is. It certainly resonates um, in, New, in New Hampshire, where water quality issues and air quality issues, um, as well as recent uh, partisan political activity to, uh, around uh, the grid and climate and energy efficiency are, are, are top issues. I've been running into uh, the, the interesting arrangement of our electricity grid and its, and its capabilities um, in a couple of different ways, including uh, warnings in New England that if we have a tough winter, we may have rolling blackouts because of supply chain problems for natural gas. Uh, people are, are thinking about global markets for natural gas and how that affects um, the powering electricity in our grid and delivering things. And we've seen in Texas what happens with a grid that isn't hardened um, when the state basically lost power, um, power for a month. And all over the country, sections of the grid are really not capable of accepting a huge influx of renewable energy without substantial investment. And that really can only come 
from uh, the federal government. So people can talk about, yes, we're all for free market solutions for renewable energy. And yes, we've got to make these transitions. But it seems to me, and, and I'm, I'd be happy to hear your thought, that it's really only the federal government that is capable of dealing with this on a national, a national scope and putting into place the kind of incentives that will make it possible to make the changes in the electricity grid that will make a distributed regional renewable energy infrastructure and the transition to a more resilient renewable energy infrastructure possible. And in the meantime, I think that we're all gonna be experiencing a little bit of pain despite our rosy outlook about progress, about the transition from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable energy economy. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Well, let me start by saying a word on environmental justice. You're exactly right that it's a priority for EDF. We partner with um, groups that focus solely on environmental justice all around the country. They are integral part of advancing this issue and uh, they're valuable partners to us as we try and ensure that the um, policies that we as an organization and that we as a country are pushing um, address some of those inequities. So um, I just wanted to give a shout out to the partners that we've got all, all over the country uh, that really um, help us and hopefully we help them advance their priorities. Um, I agree with you on, particularly on the transmission piece of it, that is the type of investment that the federal government is uniquely situated to make. And uh, there are some areas where we can rely on the states. There are some areas where we can rely on the business community or our market, market forces, but um, absolutely, you're absolutely correct that we have to have transformation in that space and the federal government is uniquely positioned to, to shepherd that forward. Now, right, let's talk about, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I, let me just make one final point and that is on the transition, you are exactly right. There is going to be dislocation when we have a transition that's based on fossil fuels that we're moving away from. We have to make this bold uh, shift and it's going to impact people. One of the things that we have done um, in working with, for example, senators from say West Virginia is say, hey, let's find ways that we can support your state with clean manufacturing tax credits, with, um, uh, with incentives for, for this transition, not just for workers, which we have to do, but for whole communities, for whole states. Th those are states that were, um, powering our, our country for a long time. And now we need to make a change. We need to make a shift and we need to help them through that shift. And so um, we uh, have worked um, on a, a variety of policies that can smooth that transition, but you're absolutely right. It is not realistic to think that there's not gonna be dislocation. And we should be honest about that and upfront about it and ask those who are being impacted what they think is gonna be most helpful for them instead of us deciding in our ivory towers what it is that we think 
and uh, in Washington DC or at EDF or anywhere else, we shouldn't be telling them what's best for them. We need to be working with them and making the investments that they think are gonna help transition their communities, their families, and their business, their businesses, um, all, all, all in these in these uh, areas that we're so reliant on the fossil fuels uh, industry. Well, speaking of investments, I, I did want to talk a little bit about the bill that's not yet passed. Although who knows by the time this goes to air, and maybe if people are uh, listening a little bit late with a little bit of a lag in their podcast feed, uh, who knows where we'll be on the Build Back Better bill, but. What has to be in that bill for you and EDF to view it as a success from a climate standpoint? Well, the bill, as it passed the House and its current state in the Senate, is the most ambitious climate legislation ever. So it is by far and away has more investments, would reduce um, emissions far greater than anything we've ever done. And well, there's a lot of uh, uh, conversation and debate and discussion around what the ex final parameters are going to be. It's hard for me to see a bill that's going to get passed that's not going to meet that test of being the most ambitious bill in history. And we should celebrate that. As I mentioned a little while ago, the climate provisions have actually not been the most controversial parts of this package. The clean energy tax provisions and the clean transportation tax provisions in the Build Back Better Act are, 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 are pretty secure. They have a lot of support. Now, there are conversations about making marginal changes along in those tax proposals, but nobody's talking about scrapping them. Nobody's saying that they are not worthwhile um, policies to pursue. And so um, we feel really good about where we, where we sit there. Um, I mentioned the methane pollution fee. That's a little bit more controversial. But again, we should be taxing this pollution. We should be having companies um, incentivized to reduce those leakage, that leakage, and to reduce those emissions. And that's what a methane fee would do. Um, I would also just flag there is some impact built into the system already because of all the emissions, the historic emissions. So resilience is another part of the Build Back Better package. And that's another incredibly important part so that we can adapt to the changing climate that we've got. It's also a really important environmental justice aspect of the bill because it does uh, tend to impact uh, lower income communities and communities of color. I'm, you know, you've been, you've been in, uh, in public, in the service of the public for a very long time. You've, you've, you've been on the inside of big decisions in the House and the Senate and NGOs. I mean, you are, you're, you're, you're a real player in the, in, in the, in the business of, of moving our country around. So what's your best or funniest, or most significant, or when somebody says so, it, it what's it like? What's the one? What's the story? What's the story that you tell? What what do you what do you say to people? What what's the story? 
Well, when I was uh, younger than I am now, this was uh, during the Clinton administration, I had a job at the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the uh, White House complex. And I took this job and I will tell you that I felt like a playa. I thought that I was pretty well the coolest person ever because I had this big new job. And I got a call inviting me to be the commencement speaker at the University of Massachusetts. And um, that was kind of a big deal. It's not Swarthmore, but it's but it wasn't Swarthmore, it's a, it's but it was a, a, it's a big university. It's a prestigious institution. And the one in Amherst. Yeah, they were calling me like 10 months in advance to see if I could be their commencement speaker. And it was very exciting for me. Um, it turned out that uh, they were trying to reach Tipper Gore and I am not Tipper Gore. And <laughs> they had absolutely no interest in having me attend. And that was my uh, not quite as cool reaction or outcome to that particular phone call. So look, I, I'm, I'm going to call the Swarthmore people because you are, you are highly qualified at this point to be the commencement speaker at Swarthmore. You know who, you know who the commencement speaker was for me? I Bill don't. Cosby. Yeah. Ooh. That's how far we've come as a country. Let me, let me ask you this. I, I, I mean, I, first of all, I love that story. I, I absolutely do. But I, I'd love to get your perspective. You know, when I talk to other former staffers, I'm washed up. Most of them are, are not washed up. They're, they're, they're still kind of hands in. But we all engage in the same exercise of, oh, it used to be so much better. It used to be back in the day when Republicans and Democrats held hands after work hours and quaffed ale together or whatever it is we did. Is, are we kind of kidding ourselves? Do you, do you really think that things have gotten measurably more difficult. I don't want to say worse, but do you, do you think that the the atmosphere and the ability to work together and to be productive has genuinely gotten more challenging, or or do you think that you know it's 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 pretty much the same stuff? Well, I think the country is more polarized than it was, and I think Congress reflects the country. So I think that the Congress um, is more polarized than than it was. I also think that there are opportunities to make progress. I think there are opportunities to, to have successes. We had a pretty polarized country um, 10 years ago and Congressman was there, I was on the Hill. We were able to pass a healthcare bill and that is a bill that's helped millions of people. It was passed, um, uh, over some partisan rancor, and yet there was success there. And so I guess I look at that and I say, there's always room to move forward, even in the most divided of times. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it, politics is a challenging, challenging game. And um, I think that part of the most troubling um, a uh, piece of politics is state, for me anyway, is a misinformation. Um, there is, if you can't agree on the facts, if you can't just agree on kind of the basics of, um, of what you have in front of you, it makes it really hard to find common ground. So I do think that that's challenging. 
But all that having been said, um, I, I also think that there's an opportunity for us to make progress. And I'm very optimistic that we're gonna have Build Back Better signed in some form before mm, Valentine's Day. So- and I don't want our younger listeners to get the sense my, my favorite part in some ways of working on Capitol Hill was talking to people right out of college who were really excited about working on Capitol Hill. I don't want our younger listeners to hear the way I kind of couched that last question and think, Ugh, I mean, maybe we, this you know, is pe- not the thing for I, me. Do, I don't, do people really understand that the way Washington works is that you've got a bunch of mouthpieces and that the country is being run essentially by 22 year old people. I mean, that, 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 that is, that is simply the way it works. At least it worked that way in my office. Cause Matt hired a whole bunch as my chief of staff of really smart 22 year olds who from Swarthmore uh, were they all from Swarthmore? No, all of not them, a single one. Single, I couldn't find anyone. And I they tried. were all from Swarthmore and they all would tell me what to do every day. And I would simply say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And off I would go and, 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 and talk. Uh, I was while being they... way too reductive about this way too. Re- but I, I do, I do want to ask you, Elizabeth, do you, do you think that if you could go back to your 22 year old self, is there something you wish you could have told yourself then that would have been a lesson well learned for how to navigate working in politics, working on Capitol Hill and, and doing what you do, which is, which is really steering public policy in America? Be confident, be bold and be well-grounded and then compromise. <laughs> Listen, I think that one of the... Um, Dangerous parts of the new politics is the lack of willingness to compromise. And so I think it's an incredibly important part of getting to good solutions and getting progress made. Um, The idea that you would sacrifice something because it's not perfect uh, is popular these days, but it's not very practical. So that was what I would tell my 22 year old self. I'd also say, invest in apple <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I, my, one of my one of my kids who's now an adult now 38 told me about i don't know 25 years ago or more um he said you know you really ought to invest in microsoft and uh we said oh you know what's the big deal anyway that's why i'm hosting radio shows and i'm not flying to the moon with jeff with jeff (laughs) well that would be uh that would be a better spot for all of us well look i could i I could actually recollect uh, about um hill lore all day literally all day um but alas we're coming toward the end of the show so first of all i want to thank you I, I genuinely feel more upbeat about where we're heading on climate than I did coming into the show. And I don't think you're putting on rose-colored glasses. I, I, the, the way you cover it and, and the way you talk about it really does make me think that there's more engagement, there's more progress, and stuff is going on in the background, even stuff below the surface of some of these big pieces of legislation that maybe we're not thinking about on the top line. And I, I, you know, I guess whatever the headlines are about the COP26 summit or whatever acronym soup we want to throw out, it it does seem like 
things are generally trending in the right direction. And if I've learned nothing else, it's that Paul was just dead wrong at the top of the show when he used the wrong article to describe Swarthmore College. He said, a great liberal arts college instead of the greatest liberal arts college. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.